Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6 as we continue our practice on simplicity. Have you ever said something only to later regret it? Because you made a fool of yourself or you made a fool of somebody else and hurt a relationship even beyond repair? Or have you ever not said something only to later regret it? You kick yourself, like, what was I thinking? Why didn't I say something? And now it's too late. Now, we don't have the digital apparatus to poll you in real time, but I imagine you would all say, yes, you are not alone. Dr. Francis Collins, who for many years was the head of the Human Genome Project and is considered by many to be one of the great scientific minds of our era and also is a follower of Jesus. In his book, The Language of God, he writes about how human beings at the level of genetic code are in essence a living language, that what separates us from the animals is our capacity for speech. Run that idea through the grid of what theologians call original sin, and it comes as no surprise at all that our highest highs come from language. Think of poetry, which many consider to be the ultimate expression of the human soul, or literature, or religion and philosophy, or think of scripture itself that we're about to read, where the mind of God and the mind of humanity come together on the page. And at the same time, our lowest lows also come from language. The philosopher Dallas Willard said the mouth is the main thoroughfare of evil in human life. Read the news. I mean, most of it, read it tomorrow morning. Most of it is about the havoc left behind by what somebody said, in particular in our current political climate. Think about kind of your own autobiography and broken relationships in your own life, a wound that you have or a wound that you gave that is likely the byproduct of a careless word. And while we often follow up a careless word by saying something like, oh, I didn't mean it, if we are honest with ourselves, a lot of the time we did mean it. And that's the problem. That careless word was symptomatic of a much deeper problem in our heart. Listen with your Bible open to Luke chapter 6 to what Jesus has to say on the symbiotic relationship between our speech and our heart. Luke chapter 6, take a look at verse 43. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, or more literally, it can be translated the treasury of his heart, the bank or the inner vault of his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Or that can be translated, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or as my parents said to me when I was a kid, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. What's down in the recess of our heart comes up through our mouth for good or for evil. So, is there a practice from the way of Jesus to bring our speech into alignment with Jesus' kingdom good? Yes, and it's next up on our docket. We call it simplicity of speech. 
We define the practice of simplicity overall as an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. Last week, I gave you a map for our practice. We started with simplicity of heart. Today is simplicity of speech. Then next week, we get into simplicity of apparel. After that, simplicity of stuff. And then to end, simplicity of schedule. Notice the flow there from the heart or the inside out. So before we kind of jump into the external world, we thought it would be fitting to spend a week on the interface between our internal world and our external world, that is our speech. Now, when I first read up on kind of the practice of simplicity down through church history, the number one thing that struck me as alien and like what, like way out of place was what teachers of the way of Jesus before us called simplicity of speech. I mean, in my first reading, I was like, what, what does that even mean? In fact, in honesty, my like defense mechanism all lit up. I'm a writer and an amateur philologist. Like I'm a lover of language. Does that mean I have to like cut it down my verbal armory? Does that mean like no more than one adjective allowed or no more than two syllables or three syllables allowed? And while there is a type of speech that is pretentious and kind of an elite put off, that's not at all what they mean by simplicity of speech. Simplicity of speech is a disciplined attempt to bring our speech into alignment with Jesus' heart. Like all of the practices, it's based on the life of Jesus himself. It is a serious effort made by those who apprentice under Jesus to take on his inner nature and then to manifest it through our own personality and gender and culture, whether you're an external processor or an internal processor, whether you're kind of the life of the party or you're more quiet and shy, whether you come from a loud and verbose culture or one that is more kind of reserved through you and how God made you and where you come from to manifest the inner nature of Jesus in your speech to talk like Jesus, and to not talk like Jesus. A short word on each. First off, to talk like Jesus. Turn over to Mark chapter 12, to the left in your Bible. Mark 12, and let me read over you from verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and they said, "Teacher." We know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. That sounds like a compliment, but the whole thing is a trap. Is it right, here's the trap, to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? All right, that's a, that's a no-win question, right? Because it's such a divisive issue in Jesus' day. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is on this coin? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Notice how Jesus, one 
sample here of many, seemed to have just the right word for just the right time. He was kind of like a verbal kung fu master. It wasn't just that he was intelligent. I mean, he was, for sure. He's the greatest teacher of the human condition to ever live. His depth of insight is just without parallel. But more than that, his emotional intelligence was off the charts. He knew what each person could receive or could not receive, knew when to rebuke, when to comfort, when to go easy, when to lay into somebody, when to teach, when to ignore and walk away. The highest level of relational dexterity in a leader or a human being is when people, you know, who have kind of the self-awareness and the self-mastery to meet different personality types at their level of maturity. I'm actually taking a course right now online on a new differential psychology. And right now, this week, we're in kind of the module that's all about how to interact with people who are different from you. And man, it is, most of it is far beyond me to take somebody who's very different from you and to meet them where they are at. That is ninja level emotional intelligence. Jesus was the master. He was a great example of that line from the Hebrew wisdom literature. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. A word fitly spoken. Love that turn of phrase. So simplicity of speech is a disciplined attempt to talk like Jesus. But secondly, to not talk like Jesus. Here's what I mean. Turn a few pages to the right to Mark chapter 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. Notice that is so witty. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? Aren't you going to defend yourself? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. There's that word again, amazed. Note in Mark 12, the Pharisees are amazed at what Jesus said. But just a few chapters later in 15, Pilate is amazed at what Jesus did not say. In not talking, Jesus was living out the prophet Isaiah's vision of the Messiah's coming execution. Quote, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And Jesus not talking is a courageous act of quiet rebellion against the political leaders of his day and of a deep trust in God. And this is one of many stories where Jesus would demur or just refuse to get drawn into a controversy, or he would answer, but in a cryptic, wry way, or he would just walk away. Robert Cardinal Seurat, in his book, The Power of Silence, which is one of the best books I've read in years, writes about this story in particular with Pilate, quote, Jesus is so imperturbable, so calm, and so peaceful that one might think he does not hear the howling of the crowd, which is drunk with hatred. Pilate does not understand the use of such an extraordinary silence. 
He is confronted with God's silence in the midst of the howling of men who are drunk with irrational hatred. This event, listen, contains for us a doctrine and a teaching in the school of Jesus with our heart, understanding, and will wide open. Let us allow God to introduce us into his silence and diligently learn to love and to live in this same silence. How good is that? And he's not the only one to take the story of Jesus before Pilate as a template for our speech as followers of Jesus. Peter, who was likely watching the story unfold from a distance, in his reflection on Jesus' silence before Pilate said this in 1 Peter chapter 2, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Notice that's in quotes. That's a quote from the next paragraph in Isaiah 53. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Notice Peter's interpretation of the story, that for Jesus to not talk or defend himself or fight back was an act of trust in God to care for his soul and body, to vindicate his reputation. All that to say, simplicity of speech is as much about not talking like Jesus as it is about talking like Jesus. Now, let's just hit pause for a minute and call out the elephant in the room. This is very hard to do. Am I right? Take a look at what Jesus' brother, James, has to say about it later in the New Testament. James chapter 3, verse 1. Turn there if you want. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Not my favorite verse in scripture at all, but one that is very true. I'm living proof of the next line. We all stumble in many ways. All of us get it wrong in our speech. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, more on that word in a minute, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we 
praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing or cussing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, and notice how he's riffing on Jesus' teaching from Luke 6 here. Can a fig tree bear olive or a grapevine bear figs? And the answer, rhetorical question, no. For James, learning to control our tongue is like trying to tame a wild beast inside our body. He's smart enough to intuit thousands of years before neuroscience that our tongue is not under the control of what scientists call the automatic responses of our body. Think about it. The vast majority of things that we say and later regret or do and later regret as well are not the result of conscious planning or decision-making. They are the result of the automatic responses in our body or what Paul in Romans calls our body of sin. He doesn't mean that your body is bad. He just means that sin is literally woven into our central nervous system at a cellular level, passed down, if you know anything about epigenetics, from our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents in our genetic code so that when people scare us or criticize us or cut us off in traffic, our body just reacts, that survival instinct in us. In fact, scientists tell us that most of our life is automatic. It's not the result of like prefrontal cortex decision-making. It's just in our code. So on one hand, you know, don't beat yourself up too much when you say something you regret. It's just beyond the reach of your willpower or your mind. On the other, don't shrug it off and therefore just, well, you know, boys will be boys or it is what it is. James writes that anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. The translation perfect is misleading. The word is telos in Greek, where we get the word teleology, as in the telos or the end goal. It can be translated mature. It's the same word used by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, be telos as your Father in heaven is tell us. Jesus would not have commanded something that he did not think was possible in this lifetime with him. But most scholars argue he doesn't mean perfect in the platonic sense of, you know, the ideal with no error, but perfect in the sense, tell us, mature, you reach your full potential, as we would say. What James seems to be saying, if I'm reading him right, is that it's possible to tame the tongue, over a lifetime of apprenticeship to Jesus, but we need help from outside ourselves. Quote, no human being can tame the tongue, but by implication, he's saying God can. And this is where the practice or spiritual discipline of simplicity comes in. All of the practices, I say this all the time, are a means of grace. They are, we're not earning anything. There's effort, but not earning. We, through the practices or the spiritual disciplines, we open up our soul to God and cooperate with his spirit in our spiritual formation. As Dallas Willard put it, quote, the disciplines are activities of mind and body purposefully undertaken to bring our personality and our total being, including our body with all of its automatic responses, into effective cooperation with the divine order. They enable us more and more to live in a power that is, strictly speaking, beyond us, deriving from the spiritual realm itself. So, how do we begin? 
Well, the first and most obvious step is just to talk less. The Bauhaus architect Ludwig van der Rohe made famous the saying, less is more. As one of the founders of modern architecture, he used that maxim for the design of a building and how when you strip a building or a home or the decor in a room or a piece of furniture of all the excess detail, kind of down to its raw essence, what you're left with is not only more functional, but often far more beautiful. We can apply that same logic to our speech as well. The monks have long adopted this posture of less of less is more in speech. They have all sorts of rules about when you can and cannot talk, set times every single day and every single week and throughout the year where it is all silence. During times of silence, they go so far as to carry a writing tablet around to communicate with each other like, We need more salt. They write it out rather than talk. Again, not as like an uptight neurosis, but as a disciplined attempt to talk less. All your introverts are thinking, I should have become a monk or a nun. And maybe you are right, but if too late now for some of you. (laughs) But it's not just the monks. You know, we've been hearing a lot over the last few years, and I'm all for it, about how so much of Western literature is dominated by white men like myself and the need to listen to the voice of women and people of color and people from Africa and Asia and South America, 100%, I am all in. And in the same way, we also need to listen to those from the past as well. As progressives, you know, a lot of progressives are guilty of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, the assumption that if an idea is newer, it is therefore better by default. It's a kind of evolutionary view of human history. And if an idea is old, therefore it's behind the curve or the arc of history. And when you read Christian writers from the past, Really prior to the last hundred years or so, first off, you're struck by how intelligent and, and how, like how the high level of consciousness. When I read Julian of Norwich or Augustine or St. Teresa or St. John of the Cross, they sound anything but behind the times, like far more sophisticated often than a Freud or a Jung or anybody I read today. But when you read writers from the past, from the way of Jesus, really prior to about a hundred years ago, One very conspicuous difference between ancient literature and modern Christian literature is how much they warn us about what they call idle chatter. Idle chatter, which when you read about it, sounds a lot like what we call chit-chat or small talk. Followers of Jesus who came before us saw small talk as vain, egotistical, a kind of waste of time, a distraction from God, and a breeding ground for sin. Now, disclaimer, there is a type of small talk that is a form of hospitality. It is a way to love and welcome people into relationship. Social scientists argue the first seven minutes of any conversation is just shallow banter, but it's not a waste because it takes that long for the human brain to feel safe enough for any kind of vulnerability. So small talk, when it's done well, is a way to kind of help people just relax and open up. A lot of women are, not to stereotype, but a lot of women are really good at this. They often start off a conversation with a compliment about another woman's hair or a man's hair or, uh, you know, a way that your earrings or your shirt kind of draws out the color of your eyes. On the whole, we guys struggle to compliment each other. And as a result, our conversations often lack depth. 
Meaning there is a type of small talk that is great, but far too often our small talk is a breeding ground for gossip, slander, a put down, character defamation, deceit, a white lie, exaggeration, a half-truth boasting, kind of one-upmanship, sarcasm, power dynamics, and it is the cause of evil and not good in the world. So here are three reasons to limit our small talk. One, when we talk less, we sin less. Or in the language of Proverbs 10, which is what all the monks quote on a regular basis, when words abound, transgression is inevitable. But the one who restrains his words is wise. Or in the words of the King James, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. As somebody who a core part of my job is to talk for a living, I am living proof of that wisdom. There's no way around it. More talk equals more sin. And one of just the best ways to mitigate against sin in our life is just to shut up and talk a little bit less. Two, when you do talk, people will listen. When we overtalk, you know, people tune us out. But when people discipline their speech, when they do talk, other people listen. One of our elders, Dr. Peter Quint, is by far the quietest of our group. He will sit through an entire meeting and often never even say a word. But when he does say a word, I listen. I will later, for days after, often replay what he said in my mind over and over and just kind of muse on it. It was said of George Fox, the original Quaker, that, quote, the fewness and fullness of his words have often struck even strangers with admiration. That's the idea, fewness and fullness. Third, when we are quiet and listen, we create space for other people's voice to come out. For every person in a conversation who is a loud mouth, like myself at times, there are often two or three people who are shy. Some of that is just the result of personality, but some of it is because we dominate the conversation and don't create a safe place for people to come out as they are. When we listen and we ask questions and we make peace with a lull in the conversation or silence, we often draw people out of their shell and discover the beauty of another soul. I remember a number of years ago, a friend of mine said, in a conversation, I make it my aim not to be interesting, but to be interested. Not to show off and kind of manipulate people's opinion, but just to ask questions and listen and and really love people in that way. And if we're honest, not all of us, myself included, can be all that interesting, but all of us can be interested. So step one is just to talk less. But that said, speech is not bad. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And quiet in and of itself is not a virtue. You can stay quiet in a conversation because you are insecure or seething with resentment or aloof or that's how you punish people as you withdraw, not because of a deep confidence in the Father's love. To clarify, simplicity of speech isn't about no speech. It's about less speech. Think of the less is more philosophy. If you read design philosophers, and yes, that is a thing, they talk about how beauty is a kind of rightness. It's whether it's an object or a painting or a building, it's the right kind of proportion, the right sense of composition and color and functionality and an intelligence behind each aspect of an object. The same is true for simplicity of speech. 
I am not trying, hear me right now, I'm not trying to create a culture of neurosis where we're all like quiet and scared to talk next time we come together behind our face mask or whatever. I want a church that is open and warm and comfortable in its own skin. But we kind of have that for the most part. What we don't yet have is that counterbalance of quiet. So kind of step one is we just discipline our mouth to talk less. The next step, if you're taking notes, is to curate our conversation in such a way that we manifest Jesus' heart in our speech. The New Testament writers have a ton to say about our speech as followers of Jesus. It's a major theme in the New Testament. And when you read the New Testament passages on speech, a composite sketch of the type of speech that is to come out of our mouth starts to come into focus. Here's just a few core tenets, not an exhaustive list at all. We are to one, tell the truth and not lie. Of course, one of the 10 commandments is do not lie. But Jesus in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he took that to a whole other level where he said, don't swear an oath at all. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. What he was getting at was total honesty in our speech, complete, straight up, without like, you are who you say you are. No subterfuge, no guile, no PR spin. Why do we lie? Well, most of the time, it's because of one of the two most basic survival emotions, I fear or I want. I fear, we lie to get out of trouble or because we fear what people will think of us or people will think we're bad or we're stupid or we're uncool or we're provincial or we're not well-read or whatever it is. Or I want, we want people to think we're good even more so we want people to think we're better than we actually are. This is where an essential kind of subcomponent of honesty is humility. Contrary to popular opinion, humility is not a low view of yourself. It's That's like an inverted form of pride. Like, I'm bad. I'm terrible. You receive a compliment. No, not really true at all. That's not That's not true. Humility is just an honest appraisal of yourself before God, where your focus is not on yourself. It is on God and on other people. But how often do we use language, name dropping or verbal one-upmanship or a kind of witty riposte or deceit, whether it's a minor one like a white lie or exaggeration or a half-truth or you're just quiet or a full-on like bold-faced lie? How often do we use speech to make people think that we are better than we actually are? or more savvy, or more Christian, or more moral, or better read, or educated, or more successful, or have more money, or whatever it is than we actually are. We are to tell the truth. Second, we are to ask for what we want, not manipulate, dominate, or condemn. Okay, stay with me. One of Jesus' most misunderstood teachings is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Now, people read that as a statement about prayer, and it is, but in context, Prayer is the secondary application. We are to ask God for what we want for sure, but the primary application in context is that we are to ask other people for what we want from them, what we would like them to do or what we'd like them to stop doing. We're not to avoid hard conversations or not talk or manipulate people or sweet talk them. We are just to ask, please do this, or would you please not do this or whatever it is. 
One of the reasons I'm confident that the primary interpretation is about interpersonal relationships and not prayer is because in context, right before that, Jesus says, don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet which is most likely the most common interpretation of that is don't force good things on people who are not ready for it yet. Don't attempt to make people receive what they are not ready for, a verse that every parent should take to heart. And right before that, Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged with the measure you use. It will be measured back to you. Again, likely he's talking about interpersonal relationships. He's not saying don't make judgments about good and evil, but don't judge as in don't shame people into the behavior that you think is best. Willard, in his writing on this text, called it condemnation engineering. Love that. It's the way that we utilize moral superiority, shame, and contempt to get people to do what we think they should do. We see a ton of this online and in social media where condemnation engineering is the norm. And the problem is it just does not work. Most people go the opposite direction. Survival instinct kicks in and fight back with a tweet war or whatever. And then a lot of other people just kind of go quiet or go underground, but do not change. Condemnation engineering is simply not a long-term solution for issues of justice and injustice in our world. Third, we are to build people up and not tear them down. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 4. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, not your needs, their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. A great rule of thumb before you say something is, will this build up and benefit the person? Or is this actually for me to vent or to feel better or to get something off my chest? Finally, we are to bless and not curse. As Paul said to the Romans, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. A blessing in biblical theology is a strange mix, beautiful one, a prayer and a prophecy and a compliment and they had a declaration of the future all in one. Neuroscience is just now catching up to ancient Hebrew stories about the power of blessing and of cursing. Read Genesis. Of course, the famous study was done on the two plants that has since been redone all of the time, most recently by, by Ikea in an anti-bullying campaign. Go Google this. It's really fun to watch. They set up two identical plants in a whole bunch of different public schools, each in a glass case. And in each one, they set up a speaker and one on repeat 24 hours a day was just playing insult after a dig, after we hate you, you're ugly, we don't want you here, go away. And the other was, you're beautiful, we love you, we care about you. You can watch the time-lapse video. Within a few days and weeks, one plant died and the other started to flourish and grow. In the same way, people live up or down to the words that we speak over them. Parents, this is more applicable for us than anybody else. It is our grave responsibility before God. We have to develop the capacity for simplicity of speech. We have to tame our tongue because our children will live up or down to what we speak over them. When we say, you little devil, or you'll never amount, or you always do that, we literally declare a hell over them, not a kingdom of God over them. We are to bless, to empower, to impart life, to flow the hope of the kingdom of God in and through a human soul. This is the power of blessing. 
and of cursing. One sad development in my generation, in my opinion, is the widespread social acceptance of kind of the cussing Christian phenomenon. There are all sorts of reasons that I don't cuss. One is because I'm a bit self-righteous and pharisaical. Let's just be honest. But, and it makes me feel morally superior. And I love that feeling. It makes me feel really nice. But the other is because I think the New Testament clearly commands us not to. Paul goes on, next line, among you there must not be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place. They just don't make sense in the kingdom of God or in the heart of a follower of Jesus, but rather thanksgiving, gratitude. Or in Colossians 3, very similar line, rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Notice, seasoned with salt, not salty, not at all what he's saying. Think about what cussing is. It is the opposite of blessing, the release of life into people's destiny. It is cursing. It is an emotional discharge of death, anger, and hell into the world. So speech that is the norm in the world, especially if you're a dude, like, like, coarse joking, bad, filthy language, a lewd joke, all of that is the norm, but are out of place in the life and soul of a follower of Jesus. And then, of course, the highest, last, the highest echelon of kind of the New Testament vision of speech is what the New Testament writers call prophecy or the word of wisdom or the word of knowledge, where you speak not just out of your own mind, but out of the mind of Christ himself, where something comes into your mind or imagination, a word or a phrase or a scripture or a picture or a sense, and you, in humility, not in a kind of wobbly voice, like, thus saith the Lord in King James English, but just in humility, you offer, man, my senses, my intuition, what comes to mind is, and you speak something over another person's life or destiny, whether it's your best friend or a stranger on the street or somebody at church, and they literally hear and receive the love and the identity and the destiny of God over their life. That is the ultimate vision. Now, before we end, I do not want you to think that I have it all together. Um, If you know me at all, if we're in a relationship, I over-talk on a regular basis. Ask my Bridgetown community. I um, interrupt people in meetings. Ask our staff. I uh, one-up people at times, or I attempt to, not always successfully. I use condemnation engineering in particular with my wife and kids to get what I want or even what I think is good and Christian. I can be passive-aggressive, unsarcastic. All of that is in me. In fact, at this stage in my apprenticeship to Jesus, the majority of sin in my life has to do with my mouth, with what I say or do not say. But as I've been gearing up for our teaching today, I have been getting a vision for the kind of person I could become in Jesus. Think of our little acronym of VIM, vision, intention, means. A lot of today, the end goal is just a vision of simplicity of speech to create space for you to make an intention to then move forward with a few means. On that note, our practice for the week week ahead is for me as much as it's for you, and it's all up at practicingtheway.org slash simplicity. Part three is very simple. It's just a little exercise where the goal is one to three times a day to catch yourself before you talk and just stay quiet. Just stand there, just watch what happens, not say anything. 
see how it feels. Notice, kind of pay attention to your interior world. Um, if your experience is anything like mine, I've been doing it the last few days. I feel really uncomfortable. I feel um, a little powerless, a little out of control, but in a good way, not in a bad way. I'm so used to relying on my verbal ability to manipulate people to get what I want, to shape their behavior in the direction I think is right, and to kind of control or attempt to control their impression of me. The discipline of simplicity of speech, and in particular of science, silence, will tame that part of me and of you and start to rewire the automatic impulses in our body. For some of you, especially those of you who are extroverts and external processors, this will be very hard for you. That's okay. Go easy on yourself. No judgment at all. But for others of you, listen carefully, you actually need to go in the opposite direction of quiet. You need to talk more, not less. You need to grow in your confidence in God and in who God has made you to be by talking, not by, like myself, not talking. So maybe for you, the exercise in the week ahead is the exact opposite. It's to write a note or to speak up in a conversation or to say what you think or to offer a prophetic word when you would rather just sit and watch. To end, think of how life-giving and peaceful it is to be in the presence of someone who is at ease in their own body, who is not pretentious or egotistical or insecure, or calculating that kind of sharp look in the eye, or ambitious, or on guard all of the time. What is he really, or what is she really thinking? But who is hospitable, and warm, and just kind? My wife, if you know her, is very much like this. We are all drawn to those types of people. Can you imagine if we were to become those types of people? Not just through kind of hearing a teaching one Sunday, and then willpower. Again, it's way deeper. It's in our genetic code at this point. But through practice, through spiritual discipline, through a long obedience in the same direction over many years, just a disciplined attempt to take on the inner posture of Jesus himself. One to three times a day, just to not say something. Let's start there. Can you imagine what your life would look like if you were not afraid? if you did not need other people to think well of you or approve of you or praise you or give attention to you, if you did not need to talk in a certain way or dress in a certain way or behave in a certain way or consume in a certain way to impress people or to feel safe and okay, but if you were just happy and content to talk or to not talk, because you are living in the kingdom of God with Jesus. Jesus, right now, we just pause. Come, Holy Spirit, into our living room or our kitchen, wherever we are right now. No man can tame the tongue. No woman can either. Have mercy, God. We pray for more than mercy. We pray that you would transform our soul and our church from the inside out to take on the inner heart of Jesus himself. Mm -hmm.